0: Well, please pray with me from Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, there we go. Getting used to this now. Uh, Have you ever had any mixed emotions before? Obviously, we've, it's probably happened a time or two in our lives. Uh, if you don't want to go through one of those traumatic experiences for yourselves, why don't you walk through one of mine with me? Actually, the, probably the, the time in my life where I had the most mixed emotions before. It was August 18th, a Thursday of 2011, around 2.05 p.m. So, uh, everything that summer led up to that date. Uh, it didn't matter whether it was the miles that I ran, the pennies of my bank account that I spent, or even the emails that I sent it all pointed to Thursday, August 18th, 2011. And maybe you have some ideas about what I'm talking about, but let me just clear it up. That was the day that I moved into college. That was the day I moved into Wittenberg dorm on the campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. And at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, my parents left my college dorm room in tears. But... At 2.05 p.m., I was left in my room, and I was the one in tears. Now, my parents were the ones who had provided for me, who had taken care of me, who had given me clothing, food, shelter, who had shown me unconditional love my entire life, and yet now they were walking away from me, not just to go a few miles down the road, but to go some 400 miles away to being at their home. And they were leaving me with a few guys that I had talked to a handful of times over the past summer. What could go wrong? And as I stood in my room all alone at that point, I thought to myself, what have I gotten myself into? Needless to say, I started college with a few mixed emotions. But let's put ourselves in the sandals of the disciples today in our text from Luke chapter 24. What might have been some of the motions that the disciples were going through at that time? They had seen their Lord, their Savior, their Master, their friend, crucified on a cross a few days earlier. They had heard that he had been put in a tomb left for dead, and yet... A few days afterwards, they had heard that he had miraculously risen from the dead and he had appeared to a few of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And after all of that takes place, after he breaks bread with them and manifests that it is Jesus who's with them, he then goes to be with all the rest of the disciples. And he manifests to them that everything in the scriptures that we call the Old Testament now, whether that's the law of Moses, those first five books of the Bible, the Psalms, and all that the prophets wrote was pointing forward to him and was fulfilled in him. And after he does all of this, well, what takes place? He ascends into heaven. What well, might have been some of the emotions that they were going through? How would you respond if you were in their sandals? Maybe it's how we respond when we hear the calling that our God gives to us to be his witnesses. Maybe they, along with us, have some mixed emotions about what they were to do and what we've been called to do by our God. We know this calling that our God has given to us is is not worth comparing to anything in this world. No matter the pain and the suffering, the worst that this world has to throw at us, it's not worth comparing because we get to be the ones. Our God has chosen to use us to be the ones who go out and show and also tell people the best news that they could ever hear. There is someone who loves them so much that he was willing to die on a cross for them so that they could have life, true life, what life is meant to look like in this world in him. They have one who loves them unconditionally, no matter what they've done in the past or what they might do in the future. This is the message that we get to go out with. And yet how do we respond to the calling that our God has given to us? I know when I was back at St. Paul, we had small groups have been going through the red letter challenge right now. And to begin, we, we had an overview of everything that was taking place. And the question was asked, so out of the five principles of being in God's word, of serving, of forgiving one another, of giving sacrificially and of going out in his name, what is going to be the most difficult for you to do? And the abounding answer that they gave in our small groups was that of going out in Jesus' name. That was going to be the most difficult for them to do. The question is why? Why is it so difficult for us to go out in Jesus' name and to show people his love and grace that he has shown to us? But I don't think we have to think very hard. I think we know the the answer to why it's so difficult It's that sometimes we're just captivated with fear. We're scared of a few different things possibly taking place. Number one, we're scared of, well, maybe, just maybe based on the words that we speak or the actions that we show someone, we might push them further away from Jesus Christ than they were before. Sometimes we're scared about the potential reactions that they'll have based on those words and actions. And that completely stops us even before we do anything or say anything from doing that because of how they potentially might react to our words and actions. Or sometimes I think we set ourselves up for failure. And this is going to be a a little bit more difficult, but for those of you who are older, maybe you've done this before. Maybe you walked up to somebody's door and (coughs) rap-tap-tapped on it and asked the question when somebody opened the door, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? So there's a big thing back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's called uh, the Kennedy Evangelism Explosion. And if we're being honest with ourselves, this was a, a fair tool to use back in the day. But today, does it really work in our culture or our context? I mean, who knocks on a door of a stranger and what stranger opens a door to that person? I mean, we, can, we have our phones. We can look. Oh, I don't know that person. I'm not opening the door. But let's say they do open the door and we ask that question. How many people do we know that would respond, well, you say there's a heaven. I say that there's not. You have your truth and I have mine. Let's take it one step further. Let's say that they actually respond to the question that we ask. Does that then begin a conversation? Or is there a monologue of things that we're supposed to say next? But let's hop back over to how the disciples chose to respond to Jesus ascending into heaven. And what we hear in Luke's account today is that it's a little bit different from any of the other gospel accounts that we have of what happens with the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, we hear about how the disciples also went up on this mountain and they worship Jesus, but then we have this odd phrase that some of them doubted. In, Luke's, or in Mark's account, uh, we hear about how the women go to the tomb. They see that Jesus is in there and they're captivated by fear and astonishment and they go out not telling anyone of what they have seen. And that's the end of the story in Mark's gospel. In John's gospel, we hear that the disciples gather together on that first day of the week in the evening uh, in a room, but it's not unlocked, but rather locked for fear of the Jews. And even if we look at the book of Acts, Luke's second account of all that takes place then after Jesus' ascension into heaven, uh, we hear how the disciples, after Jesus ascends into heaven, kind of just stand there looking up into heaven. And two men come up behind them and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? For this Jesus who has ascended into heaven is going to descend in the same way. Again, the disciples look a little bit idle in the book of Acts. Yet here in Luke's account, we hear that the disciples do three things after Jesus ascends into heaven. First, they worship Jesus. Second, they return to their homes with great joy. And third and finally, they bless God in the temple continually. I think this can explain to us a little bit about what our God has called us to do. So first, uh, they worship Jesus. And let's just stop and think how incredible a thing this is that the disciples actually do this. The disciples, after Jesus, their leader and savior, do not squabble. Do not try and figure out who's going to be the next leader, something that they talked about when Jesus was still with them, who is the greatest among them. But that's not what they do. But rather, they finally see Jesus for who he is. Now after his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. Because now they're able to see Jesus for who he is, not only as the son of man as he proclaimed himself to be time and time again, but also the son of God, the very Christ, the Messiah, the one who is promised Of old. They cannot help but worshiping him. He's the one who's come not just to bring in the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but especially in Luke's gospel, Jesus is the one who brings in those who are strangers, those who are outcasts, those who are aliens, so that they may receive his redemptive life and the forgiveness of their sins as well. And so they worship Jesus. But they can't just stay on that mount, on that hill, and create own, a city for themselves there. No, they have to take that light that they've been shown and reflect that to the world to the, in the places where they go. They have to take the life that they've been given and share that with those who are around them. And they do this all with great joy. But joy not as a feeling or an emotion that they have, because if joy is only a a feeling or an emotion, they would not have joy at this point, because their Lord and Savior has just ascended and left them. That's not something to be happy about. But the reason why they have joy is because it's a gift that has been given to them by God. Because it's tied to the work of God's son, Jesus Christ, which is completed. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And because that has taken place, they go about their work with joy. They're able to tell all people of this completed work that is for them. And they go about that back where God has placed them, back in Jerusalem. They, can, they have the opportunity to continue what Jesus has started among them. And so they go back to the temple, and they continue to bless God. They continue to practice their piety wherever they go, living according to the law that Moses had given to their forefathers. But as we heard in our epistle reading as well, they didn't just do that, but they also went about telling other people about their Lord and Savior, Jesus, no matter what the costs would have been. And this is where now, as we think about it, uh, where the rubber begins to hit the road for us. Because before the good news, the gospel message made it to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, it first began back in Jerusalem, where God had called those disciples to be. And the same is true for us today as well. This is not a, a revolutionary thing that I'm going to say, but rather that's something foundational for us as followers of Christ, as his witnesses in this world who go out in his name. And that's the fact that primarily our God has called us to be witnesses, not in some other place in this world for a short duration of time, but to be witnesses in this world in the place where our God has put us, in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods, starting from our very addresses. So for me, that's 2424. Northwest Heritage Avenue, Ankeny, Iowa, 50023. For you, that's wherever God has placed you as well. That is primarily where he has called us to be his witnesses. But being a witness for Christ is more than simply checking off something on a piece of paper, doing something that our God has called us to do. It's more than simply reading a monologue that we've been handed by somebody on our evangelism committee. Rather, witnessing for Christ is an art. It's a craft. It's a skill, all of which our God is the sculptor of. It's something that we practice day in and day out that our God is the coach of something that we rehearse every single time that we gather together as the body of Christ that our God is the conductor of. And the incredible thing is that our God gives us an example of all that he has called us to do. When we gather together as the body of Christ, he gives us the words that we are to speak when we go back out into this world to be his witnesses. He gives us the words, I forgive you. And we get to practice them when we're together here as the body of Christ so that it's something that's almost second nature for us when we go out into this world. He also shows us time and time again when we gather together the lengths that he has gone to, not just for a small group in this world, but for all of humanity so that we would have an example that we may follow when we're out in this world and looking to share Christ with our neighbor. This here is something that I like to call the neighboring square, and it comes from the book called The Art of Neighboring. And the the, the focus of that book is to get us as followers of Jesus to reach out to our physical neighbors, to love God, but also to love our neighbors, those people that live right next to us as ourselves. But before we can love our neighbors, we probably need to know who our neighbors are. And so, there's three things that we're challenged to do in that book with the people who, the eight people who live closest to us. First is to write down their first names. And if you're really good, to write down their last names as well. Second part is a little bit more difficult, and that's to write down uh, a piece of information about them that you can't understand just based on looking at them face value. And then, third and finally, you are to write down something about their faith walk with Jesus. Are they walking with Jesus? Are they rejecting Jesus? Do you know anything about it? Are they someone that you want to emulate in your faith walk as well? And I know when I went through this uh, for myself, uh, it was a little bit convicting. Show me that I don't know my neighbors as well as I thought I did. But the incredible thing is that our God is the one who goes with us through all of this. And our God is the one who works through the relationships that he's placed us in in our communities in order to share his son Jesus with them. But at this point, you're probably thinking, but God doesn't need us to be in relationship with other people. We even have the the backing of scripture for this. We can go to places like Acts chapter 8 and see that that the Spirit of God led the Apostle Philip to this Ethiopian eunuch who was trying to understand what was in the scroll of Isaiah and was having a hard time. And Philip was able to explain to them that it was not speaking about Isaiah the prophet, but rather about the Christ who had come and how God was able to work through Philip in order to share that message of Christ with that Ethiopian eunuch. And even afterwards, he was then baptized. Then we hear that Philip was taken by the Spirit away to There was no relationship there between those two. And there's many other accounts in Scripture where God is able to work through people who don't have relationships with one another in order to share the good news of Christ with them. But if that's what our God is able to do with those who are not in relationship with one another, what might our God be able to do with us or through us who are in relationships with our neighbors? What might God be able to accomplish through us? Still maybe have some mixed emotions about going out in the name of Christ. Maybe still sound a little bit daunting of a task or a calling that our God has given to us. Well, the good news for us today is that we do not go about this witnessing alone. First and foremost, we go about witnessing in the name of Christ with the Spirit of our God, who was promised to the disciples some two millennia ago in verse 49 of our text. He is the one who is the promise of the Father. He is the one who is going to clothe them with power from on high, and he is going to be the one who goes with them wherever they go and who leads and guides them to share Jesus Christ with others. And the good news is that the Spirit of our God goes with us. He was given to us in our baptisms. The spirit of our God has taken up residence inside of us, and he goes with us wherever we go. We are never alone. And our God has made the promise, Hebrews 13:5, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And unlike us when we make promises and sometimes fail to keep them, our God always makes good on his promises. But not only do we go with the spirit of our God, we also go with the family of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are here with us today. And that's what we see the disciples doing in Luke and especially then in the book of Acts as well. They gather together time and time again. They live life in community. They do not scatter away from one another when persecution comes. Rather, we hear, as Paul says in Romans 12, verse 15, they rejoice with those who rejoice. They weep with those who rejoice who weep, they have one another's back. And that's the same for us here today, right? We care about and we support each one of us who are gathered here today, right? We're looking to be uh, someone to lean on that we can provide for them in this community, right? because that's what we are. We're not just a building. Rather, we're the body of Christ. We're the community of our God. But we're not just some new fad that's, that's risen up in the past few years. Rather, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, we're part of something greater than ourselves. And so third and finally, we don't just go with the spirit of our God or the family of our God who's gathered with us here today, but we go with all those who have gone before us in the faith as well. We are a part of, as Paul says, the household of God. We're built on the foundation of the apostles, those eyewitnesses who gave an account of what Jesus Christ said and what he did, and the prophets who pointed forward to him. That's what we are a part of. We're not just gathered together with people who uh, are maybe in other places around us here in Des Moines, and not just people around us who are Christians in our world today, but we go with those who have gone before us in the faith. We're parting something greater than ourselves, something that this world might be looking for, but they don't know about. So this week, as I was putting this sermon together, came to the conclusion here and was honestly struggling How how do I tie all of these different ideas together, these mixed emotions that we might have about witnessing, but also the the reassurance that we have as those who have the spirit of our God, the family of our God, all those who have gone before us in the faith. How do I tie all this together? And I was struggling with it. And then I read uh, the red letter challenge for yesterday, day 35. And Pastor Zach, I think, summarized it pretty well. And he said... When you go beyond the levels of your comfort, you experience parts of God you would otherwise miss. And so it's my prayer for each one of us who are gathered here today, that not just today or tomorrow or this week, this month, or even just this year, but every day as we follow Christ, that we would be led to take that next uncomfortable step and in so doing, be witnesses for him and show other people Jesus. In his name, and for his glory alone. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.